Hey gang, welcome back to Tuesday. It is the best day you've had all week, and it is the best show you've listened to this hour. <laughs> I love how you narrow it down like that. <laughs> yes. So and it's actually kind of my muse day. It Yes, because, because I was out of the office yesterday, so yeah. it's my Monday slash Tuesday. It's my muse day. Yeah, I always call it ton day. Because that's how much work there is to do. Yeah, there is a Muse ton. makes it sound like it's inspirational. Like, oh, I get all these great ideas. It's my Muse day. Like, no, no, no. This is just, it's a boatload of catch up <laughs> when you miss the, a Monday. So now you've got a ton day to, you know, try to catch up from. So yeah. pile it all in. It's your ton day. Ton day is good. Yeah, I, that's a good one. I don't think I've ever heard you say ton day. I like Muse day, though. Yeah. So I don't blame you. I mean, Muse day, again, it sounds more like, woohoo, unicorns and happy <laughs> stuff, uh, as, as opposed to like oh this day's gonna get real it is heavy right so uh that's the kind of ton day we had and don't look at the markets uh all right you can't avoid it they were they were gonna be loud somebody's gonna be out there panicking uh and so here is the good news okay i'm just gonna tell you if somebody else that's like just joe public okay so this is just whomever Some random person not a financial expert and they start telling you whoa man markets are toast you should be selling okay that's a great sign that this is not the end what is your what is your favorite expression uh, there you have one by buffett that i love oh you should be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful that's the one right. i i knew i was going to butcher it but it was on the tip of my tongue that is such a great expression do you think that applies to the markets right now uh probably i think it's a little bit early here but i don't think just because of a couple of tweets and some discussion about tariffs and trade talk with china that all of a sudden all of the underlying conditions of the stock market have changed well and I mean, the stock market fluctuates. We talk about that all right. the time, right? It's not just going to go up forever. It's going to have to yeah, it's come not, down a little and adjust. And so today at the, the worst point, it was down more than uh, 2%. So that's a pretty big one-day yeah, move. That's a big swing. Okay, Pretty big one-day move. But before we throw the baby out with the bathwater. That is such a weird expression. Okay. <laughs> Let's just think this through for a moment. Okay. And consider what's going on. Uh so what it, is going on? Well, I mean, I, I can only offer theories, okay? Right. But I'm going to offer what I think is a pretty reasonable theory and explanation here. I want uh, the David Littlejohn theory. What right. is the theory on what's going on? So first, let me tell you, two there's there's a few things going on here. There's uh, technical or quantitative things going on, and that is sort of the market behavior that we're seeing, which is interesting. Okay. And then there is also... Uh, fundamental things going on that is sort of economic data and so forth and then there's also uh, what I will call swag going on swag scientific wild arse guessing okay <laughs> um, that is not usually what swag stands for but no you see okay. it's giveaways but in this case it's just uh, All right. so we're it's really some folks that are taking a guess uh, the 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 operating theory that the markets had sort of priced in a trade deal with China, and okay. now that trade deal was less certain, so uh, so comes the uncertainty of the market. So the okay. first two that you mentioned were fundamentals and what was the technical other? and technical. quantitative. And are those just happen to be correlated at the moment, or are they like? So, like, are so they no, they're just different ways to view the markets, right? So um, when you're looking at fundamental reasons for to, uh, how you value the market, what you're saying is, okay, well, 
here is there are metrics that I can look at, like how much does a company earn and what. Uh, so what kind of profit margins and what kind of debt load does it have and what kind of growth is it experiencing and what are its competitors doing and how are they valued and what is a fair comparable valuation? Those are fundamental ways to analyze a uh, position to determine value, right? Wow, okay. Th there's not a single set and agreed upon standard by which to evaluate and value a company. That's what makes a market. Right, lots of different people with different opinions about the present and future value of companies. Interesting. Okay. Now, quantitative is different. That's the study of price, movement, and volume. That is essentially saying, well, I, I'm going to look at how other people are behaving around a stock. Are they acquiring more? Are they selling more? And are they doing it in? Uh, so, so what is the disposition of the market? Is it in net accumulation or net distribution mode? What is the price pressure and momentum of the stock? You just said a lot of big words that I don't know that I fully understand. Yeah, and that's okay. This is not the purpose of the show today to become an expert on quantitative analysis. analysis. It's The idea is simply that the, the, the way that a price behaves and how people are buying, the level of aggressiveness of buying or selling is by some believed to influence price. Uh, what I will tell you is that my personal experience on this is that in the short term, while uh, academics will say that technical analysis has little bearing, I will say in the short term, when you talk about computerized trading and so forth, they think that it does move or influence the market short term. The longer that you play out this uh, data, though, the more that fundamental takes over, right? So long term, the company's financial health is what drives its value. But so, short term, there can be lots of weird things that move its value around. To put it away in a way that I understand, when we're talking about short term versus long term data, um, I, I the concept that came to mind was coin flipping. Like, you know, like, so in the beginning, like you start to flip coins and it's supposed to be 50-50 heads or tails, but it doesn't seem that way. But the more you flip the coins, the more long term you start flipping, the more it becomes more 50-50. Well, that's more like the statistics become more consistent over time. You can have any given sample or any sequence of returns be goofy. If you don't believe me, uh, the last fish derby, they were playing a heads or tails game. They got like five oh head, five tails in a row or something. It was more than that. Yeah. <laughs> it seemed like it was five, six, seven. It, it was, was like, almost the whole game was yeah, like and you're tails. Like, well, that is just not normal. <laughs> and it right? was a coin, like, and it was and it was a, an actual coin flip. And you go, well, that's one of those rare scenarios. But if you flip it a million times, it's going to come out pretty much fifty fifty, because you know the statistics play out over big enough sample size. But on any individual sample, it may not. Okay? And that's why you know, 80% probability of success, there's still a 20% probability of failure. But that's not, it's not quite what I'm talking about. Okay. What I'm talking about is if you're looking at uh, an investment over a five-year period of time, the price action over the next day or two or three isn't likely to determine the success of that investment over the next five years. So okay. having a good quality company that you buy at a good price and own it long term and have good growth prospects on the horizon, that's fundamentally driven. Technically driven is, hey, right now, is it a good time to buy this stock compared to where it could be going? Well, again, there's some uh, there's some science hidden in that art, but there's a lot more people kind of guessing and gaming. And what makes it interesting is 
the nature of the markets now, how much of it has been automated by computer systems. And so in a sense, you're gaming statistics. So when you say automated by computer systems, can you give me an example? I of... mean, literally, it's computer programs that decide whether or not to buy something based on market conditions. Now, don't they have to have an order or something no. from somebody else? No. There are computers that will buy and sell from other computers. It, I mean, more than 60% of the, the market trades, as I understand it, are computerized right now. There's no human involved at all. That's crazy. So it's not even an order from a human that says, if it hits this price, do this. Right. And if it's it hits just that the, price, it's, it's just, just a computer saying, here's the rules. And if these rules exist, then make these purchases or distributions. Crazy. I say distribution, purchase or sale. Purchase, yeah. Right? So it's either you're you accumulating or, or distributing. And um, you know they're looking to, in many cases, they're looking to try to make money on either direction. Hey, we'll, we'll sell the stock before we own it. We'll rebuy it at a lower price and then um, make our profits on a, on a declining value, right? We'll, we'll sell something before we buy it. It's a process called short selling. But again, we're getting very into the weeds. Um, this market, I think is reevaluating the trade scenario. And in light of what a protracted trade war could mean with higher interest rates and, and the companies that it could affect, how might that change the way the Federal Reserve manages interest rates? Now, you brought up something earlier about interest rates in a personal conversation that we were having. Mm -hmm. um, where are the housing interest rates right now? They're still pretty solid right now. Um, they're in the kind of low force for conforming rates. And aren't they declining a little bit? Like, aren't they kind of going on a little bit of a sale? Or? It depends. I mean, that's a day-to-day -day move. Uh, today, that was not the case, although it may follow on if we get into a... Here's here's what goes on. Think, I... think like a market maker for a minute. Okay. Okay, so if you think the stock market is going to go down for the next month or two... Okay. Okay. What are you going to do with your money? Are you, and and are you going to seek risk or avoid risk? So if I knew the market was going to go down, and the market is risky, and the market is risky, I so I, do interestingly you, enough would probably sell some stuff and then try to buy it cheaper. Right, and that's the 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 rational thought is if you, you like know, if we're I knew really I could get it on sale it, later, then I would sell my stuff now and then just go rebuy it at a cheaper sure, price because it'll were, be on sale. If you were convicted or you knew the future, then you would do that, right? Right. So what folks will do is they'll say, well, I don't really know the future for certain, but what I think is it's likely the market will go down. So I'm going to take my money out of the stock market and put it into a fixed instrument that will preserve my purchasing power. Most of the time that ends up being U.S. Treasuries. And the, the, one of the more popular is the 10-year Treasury, okay. which happens to be a fairly meaningful part of how they price mortgages. Okay, so. Uh, the theory is if the markets are going down, a flight to safety would mean that more people are going to buy 10-year treasuries. The buying or the increase in demand would raise the price, which would drive interest rates lower. That which sounds like uh, in theory would be linked to lower mortgage prices as well. So how does a raising price of a treasury lower a mortgage like that? Well, that, sounds, not, that sounds flipped around. No, nope, it's not a direct connection. But remember, the way mortgages are priced, financial institutions are hedging their long-term obligations as well. So if they have money they're loaning out, they also have money that they're hanging on to in reserves. Those reserves need to be invested to preserve their purchasing power as well. So they're hedging by buying other instruments. Whether you know, a, Remember, a loan is an asset 
to a bank because that's how they make their money, and a deposit is a liability, well, they will take a deposit and buy something like a treasury in order to guarantee an income. Right, okay. So that's a way of hedging or neutralizing risk on the books of an institution is to use those instruments. And the reason I'm asking these questions is sometimes you we make assumptions right, about how the market moves or about how things are correlated. Mm -hmm. um, and we may have our assumptions wrong. Like mm -hmm. you may think if, you know, again, if you buy treasuries that like somehow that would raise interest rates and you're saying, no, it's the opposite. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's so the, understanding where it moves and how it moves. Right, so the price of a fixed income instrument compared to the yield, their inverse relationship. So if demand goes up, that means you're willing to pay more to get a fixed income instrument, then the yield will drop. The Which relative is the yield is lower. So when rates go up, bond prices go down. But when bond prices go up, rates, rates go down. I know, and that's that was such a weird thing for me to grasp in the it's, beginning. It's a funny thing, but it's because we're used to being the asset owner when if you're the lender right then then the asset is the loan itself and you think well if i'm loaning money to somebody else at an interest rate and that and i sell the loan to somebody else well what why does the other person want to buy the loan from me so well, let's, let's give an example just because all of a sudden we're talking third parties and it gets well uh, all right so we'll do this real quickly uh katie i'm going to loan you money uh, and I decide, let's make the math real easy. You want to borrow $1,000 from me, and I say, great, you're going to pay me 10%. Okay. Okay. And so per year, um, you have to pay... Uh, $10 per year I, over 10 years. Right. So, okay. So, so I, I loan you $1,000. You pay me $100 a year in interest. Okay. Now, some the interest rates change, and they go up to 20%. Who's happy, me or you? Me, because interest rates run up, and I have the right. lower You're price on the loan. You're locked in at the better interest rate, right? right? It's like locking in your mortgage at a low rate. Right. Who's sad? You, because you could have been making more money right. on the money that you already loaned. I'm the one that's that loaned you the money, and now I'm going, well, shoot, I could have loaned it to somebody else and made more. So what can I do? Well, I can't just... Ask Unless for all I, the money back. Yeah, I mean, I'm if the contract says so, but usually I can't just say, "Hey, Katie, give me back the money." You know, we had an agreement; you get it for a certain amount of time. Right. But what I could do is go to my neighbor and say, "Hey, I got this loan to Katie. Do you want to buy it from me?" And they're going to say, "Well, what are the terms?" And I go, "Well, you know, I loaned her a thousand dollars, and she's paid me a hundred bucks a year." And I go, "Well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because you know I could go buy a different loan and make ten or twenty percent." Right. And I go. Ugh. Fine. Okay, but you know that loan's ten years, and my loan with Katie's only five years. So I still could make more. So all right. Well, what if I sold it to you not for a thousand dollars? What if I sold it to you for eight hundred dollars? And you know what they're going to say? Mom, huh, let me do some math. Yeah. Let me maybe. see if it's worth it, right? And what we'll do is we'll lower the price of the loan until the interest rates are equivalent, and so I will take a hit selling the loan. But then you gain the capital back that you could turn around well, and sell there, there, again. For, for whatever my yeah. reason, that's a whole separate issue. Right. My, if I have to sell it, then I have to take a loss at it, so be it. But uh, the person that buys the loan from me, if they end up paying $500 for the same loan, then they're still getting $100 from you, but now it's on $500 of capital. So it's the same as getting a 20% yield. There you go. Right. So the price and the yield are inverse. Awesome. All right. Long segment. Let's do this. Let's grab our first break because I want to get to the good stuff today. So we talked a little bit about the market and my message is don't panic. 
But what I want to talk about next is, you know, there are other things we can invest in. And this one is interesting. Investing in you. Stick around. We'll be right back. This is David Littlejohn. And Katie Shuck. Now, True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. This is KQEN Local Talk at 4 on News Radio 1240 KQEN. All right, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Show. Where we're going to talk about true wealth today. True wealth. Investing in yourself. Yeah, this is a fun one. Uh, I, you know, Katie and I, we go through this concept of, hey, what should we talk about on the show? And every week. We, <laughs> every week. And, and we lay out different ideas and we think, well, what could it be? And, this one, I guess, is sort of near and dear to my heart in a sense because it's probably one of the most important investments, period. Uh, because it it tends to wrap back around into every other aspect of your life, and that is this concept of investing in yourself. Now, when we were talking about pre-show, right, about investing in yourself, and we'll get there, I think there's a line in the sand that we need to draw. Okay. So... When we're going to talk about investing in yourself, we're going to talk about ways to improve your life and your quality of life. But I think we need to be careful because some people can get gluttonous in this, right? And it no longer becomes investing in yourself. It becomes like retail therapy. Okay, so that's a good point. First of all, let's define an investment. Okay, so let's talk about... so. Okay, an investment... God, I'm still getting over this cold and you can hear it every now and then. <coughs> I know. I'm Arc, thinking too that I, like my voice is slightly not quite the same. Yeah, singing it's... in church is delightful right now. <laughs> uh, You're like just strangling a cat. <laughs> so okay. So how? I mean, inv- we talk about investments. We talk about money all the time. But how is in- how is okay. it differently defined when you're investing in yourself? Well, first, I'm going to define a- a- an investment as something where you expect to get a net return out of it greater than the input. Oh, that's very good. I like that definition. Okay, okay. so you're so you going to make more out of it than what you put in. Yeah, you're going to you're going to make a, an investment in this, and something greater is going to come back from it. And the thing about retail therapy is there is a ton of rationalization in there to try to say, well, you know, I feel better, or this, that, and the other. To which I'm going to go. Um, I think that there are lots of substitutions that are better investments than retail therapy. Right. Okay. So, uh, oh, well, I had to go buy this sweater and it made me feel better versus I went for a hike and saw a waterfall. Right. But let's talk about, I mean, before we get on the negative train, let's talk about some positives really quick. So we were throwing around ideas as we were talking about the show about investing in yourself and ways to invest in yourself. Right. And so one of them that you brought up, which cracked me up, was um, was nice sheets, having nice sheets. Yeah, so I threw out a bunch, like just off the top of my head, because apparently I think odd. No, but I actually, I agree with you. Having really nice, comfortable, and I'm going to step it up. Having comfortable bedding, right? If you are not getting quality sleep every night and are coming to work exhausted all the time, then your productivity could go down. The very first show I ever did, okay, and it was me, and it was Kyle Bailey. I was going to say, it was you, and it was you. <laughs> and it was at the old radio station back when we could still take call-ins. I don't know how that changed so weird. But anyway, we the very first show was 
things that anybody can do on a regular budget to live like a millionaire. Oh, I love it. Okay. Okay. And so that's what this started as. And the nice sheets is one of those things. So there's a few things that are just low hanging fruit where you go, it's a little investment, but it goes a long way in personal comfort. And so having a good, comfortable bed and great bedding. Okay. You can do that. And it's within reach of most of us. Right. And the return on that is really high because if you think about it, nice sheets and a nice mattress, you can live the same as the world's richest person, right? Right. They they can't get a nicer bed or better sheets. Like they can't buy a nicer, a better night's sleep than you. True. Okay. You can, you can duplicate that. Another one is comfortable shoes and socks. I was going to say footwear. Footwear is so important. Um, And I've noticed as I've gotten older that cheap footwear my feet hurt, my back hurts, like, and again, not that it has to be super pricey or super expensive. Price doesn't always necessarily equate, but quality footwear is amazing. And it's more durable. They actually last longer too. Like you might find sometimes when you buy cheaper items, you replace them more frequently. Mm -hmm. So you're not really saving money. You may be saving money in the short term, but not really in the long term when you think about the quality of the product you're buying. Right. So... Those were biggies. Uh, um, Another one is uh, vehicle purchases. Get yourself a nice used vehicle instead of spending a bunch of money on a brand new inexpensive vehicle. Lower cost, yeah. And I I always say cars are funny. It's such a status symbol for all the wrong reasons. So I don't really like that one. But the, the example in this case was you could get yourself... You know, there's certain cars that are sort of timeless. True. That, you know, you end up with a uh, sort of a classic. A 20-year-old convertible can end up being a classic where, uh, and and it costs you a fraction of getting a new car. Well, I bought my new-to-me car, right? So I Mm -hmm. bought a used car about a year ago. um, And I love driving it. Like, it has brought joy to me, just driving. And my driving involves driving my children around quite often. We but, spend a lot of time in our cars. But having that's something that's fun to drive, even though it's totally the mom SUV crossover car, it's zippy, and I enjoy driving it. So I would I agree with that one. Right. But I want to talk, I still want to shift a little bit here, because what this is, is it's affordable ways to have luxury. Right. Okay. And oh, so I like that. Affordable that, ways to have luxury. That's what we were talking about there is, you know, affordable luxury, you know, get get good shoes, good sheets, have fewer articles of clothing, but have them be things that you really love. Right. So when, when you put it on, you feel good about it. It fits you right. Uh, rather than having a whole closet full of nothing to wear. Right. You know, I mean, that's people do that. And uh, this is another one. This is a toughie to get over, but it's the idea that you don't need to save everything. I say this being guilty of this for a long time is that uh, stuff becomes a burden. Mm-hmm. You may not recognize it as such, but it can become a real burden. And uh, well, and when you're saying stuff, let me clarify that a little bit further. Having too much stuff, right? So if you ever watch any kind of like of the like home cleaning shows, like there's another show right now on Netflix um about tidying up and the number one thing that she does is actually have people pare down and it's not like oh you have too much stuff you need to pare down but she talks about like like you just said what brings you joy 
right? When you wear your clothes, do they bring you toy? Is it something that you're just holding on to to hold on to? Um, and it's amazing because all of them have said, I feel so much happier having less. So it's when you say stuff, I mean, let's clarify it. Sometimes it's the quantity. Having too much, too many things in a small space yeah, it, or it, it, will make a space feel small if you if you over clutter it. Right. So having clutter, clutter, excess clutter can bring a lot of stress and anxiety to your life. It's true. So those are all funny things that and you, you kind of need to know where your personalities are and how you handle things. But for some, uh, clutter actually is a source of stress. For most, I would say, yeah. clutter and, is a source and of so, stress. And if you're willing to kind of look the other way on that, then the sometimes I have to, it begs the question, is that a coping mechanism where you look the other way? Are you genuinely comfortable with what's going on there? Or is this sort of uh, a metaphorical representation of other areas of your life where you say, well, I'm just not going to fight that fight. And so I just sort of throw in the towel on lots of things. Well, I'm going to kind of go on a tangent on a little bit of this. Last week we were talking about, um, not on the radio, but in the office, we were talking about um, storage like containers or storage units. Right. right. And we were talking about how people will pay hundred or hundreds of dollars a month to store things for eternity right until they pass away i mean some people will have storage containers for years upon years upon decades right and i'm and so you're not value you're not even enjoying your things because they're in storage like you're they're, you're not using them you're not utilizing them you're not watching them and right. you know participating and then on top of that you're spending money like a lot of times people will spend you know 10 times the amount on storing them as the value of what's inside like they could have repurchased it <laughs> Ten times yeah. over. The, the cost of story. The, the cost, cost of, of, of inventory is something that's really interesting. And so, uh, and I think we can all be guilty of this in one form or another. Um, and like I said, I, I'm not calling the kettle black on this one. I'm, I'm learning to just sort of go, that doesn't, there's no reason to keep that around. Now, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle. I am that, I, be, I actually believe in that conceptually at, for pragmatic reasons things like uh here in douglas county we have a landfill that is filling up it has a limited lifetime capacity before we're going to have other structural issues so it makes sense to not be excessive about how we tax a landfill right but that's mechanical in nature so uh, i'm not getting on a soapbox about oh you should recycle save the planet as much as i'm saying well practically you really would save even our locale from some real strain if we could do that but it starts also by you don't have to conjure up so much stuff in your life you know sometimes people buy stuff just because and i'm reminded of a guest we had uh dr gardine a few years back talking about uh the attitude of generational poverty and the idea that when you when you get a paycheck you must spend it quickly otherwise it will go away which is funny because by spending it quickly, yet, you're making it go that away. That is the point, is that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And and what do you show for it in many cases? Far less than you'd like. Right. So you were talking about luxury. So what, what ways can I, as the listener, make my life luxurious and doing it in an affordable way? Well, rather than me try to give you a list, let's talk about an attitude. Okay. Let's do that. Okay. So... The attitude is first recognize things that bring value versus the stuff. Okay, uh, shoes could be argued to be stuff, right? Right. Uh, but again, a comfortable pair of shoes 
them, there may be a cost to that, and it may be uh, more than just getting something sufficient. It may be a bit of an investment there. But again, it's something that you're every single step of the day you're going to notice. Right. Right. Uh, getting like like we talked about the sheets and the mattress. I mean, there's certain things that you can't get be above premium. Right. Right. And so you can live just like Bill Gates. You're not going to take a Bill Gates vacation. You're not going <laughs> to no. get a Bill Gates private <laughs> private jet. Maybe not. Okay. But you can have a Bill Gates night of sleep. Right. Okay. And it turns out uh, going to have a gourmet experience can be very expensive, but creating a gourmet meal doesn't have to be. True. Right? And much of it ends up being the setting because having a, you know, a really simple picnic can be just as satisfying as a really gourmet experience. And, and the example is sort of like, you know, wine and cheese looking at the river it can be every bit as nice as having a something far more exotic. It just depends on the framework. Although, let me tell you, I thoroughly enjoy my wine more with cheese when I'm sitting in some deck looking at the river than if I'm in my kitchen at home. Well, true. <laughs> so, true. so area area has something to do with it. I, I, your locale and your people that you're enjoying it with has something to do with yeah, that, for sure. I, I think the company is a big issue here. But let's be honest that you, you're not going to duplicate everything. And so what you have to know is, well, what are the battles I can fight and what are the battles I shouldn't? Okay. Okay. And keeping up with the Joneses doesn't work. I will tell you this. If I could leave people with uh, one little snippet for this segment, it is the, what you think other people's lives look like versus what they really look like. Are not the same thing. They're rarely the same. Uh, there is such a thing as a stylized life. So you see, you know, people rarely post the stuff on Facebook on their social media that makes their life look miserable unless that's like their thing like they're looking for they're just depressed and so that's their motif is okay well i'm the miserable one okay there's eeyore uh, <laughs> and and if somebody's genuinely depressed and it's a cry for help help right yeah. but but a lot of people it is poserville right let me show the glamorous parts of my life, and there's there's a lot of struggle behind the scenes, and there's a lot of unhappiness, and what people believe is, I gotta tell you, everybody, including the world's wealthiest people, they run into problems, okay? The difference between being broke with problems and being wealthy with problems is, you rarely get past the broke problems to the other problems. Aww. So they're money problems when you don't have enough. When you have enough money, then you just get to try the other problems too. True. So it, 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 you're not going to get out of that. So keep that in the back of your mind here. But look, I we're going to make a shift here. We'll, let's grab a break. When we come back, it's not about luxury anymore. This is about in, in when investing in yourself. I want to talk about how can you do that? Because I got a trick for you. This is something that uh, Brian Tracy says gets you in the top 1% of all earners. We're going to cover that when we come back after this break. This is David Littlejohn. And Katie Shaw. Yeah, True Wealth on News Radio 1240, KQEN. All right, gang. Welcome back. True Wealth, Dave and Katie laying it down. There you go. We're talking about investing in yourself today. So we talked about ways to make your life more comfortable, ways to increase. Well, to yeah. me, it's a way to increase productivity, having better sleep at night, right? Or being sure. more comfortable. So I, I want to talk, though, about I'm going to now radical shifting of gears here. Uh, 
investing in oneself so that you can get, you know, that was luxury items are just ways to live like the rich. I don't consider that an investment in oneself. I think we're rationalizing to get there, okay? But being able to access certain luxuries like the rich, yeah, that was a great segment. But let's talk about investing in oneself, meaning you want to create a better future outcome. Okay. Okay. So how do so, you create a better future? So there are a number of things that you can do here, but the, the number one investment that you get to make in yourself is education. And we don't necessarily mean formal education. It no, can be. but that oftentimes is exactly what I mean. It doesn't mean it has to be in school, but it means that you need to increase your skills and your knowledge. Okay. So the the investments that you I think that you can make are going to be investments in skills and knowledge and health and relationships. Those are the primary investments that you can make, in my opinion. So these are all uh, either ways to become more valuable or ways to spend your time well. Okay, so there's there's a little bit of give and take on that one. Yes, so, uh, but, in, but investing in yourself, uh, so remember we talk about relationships and memories are currency, so uh, an investment in yourself is, but first we'll talk about the education side of things, and people get mixed up on this. Why okay? is that? They get mixed up because they think education means that you have to go to a school somewhere and have a credentialing when you're done. No. Okay. And that's not the case. It just means furthering your knowledge. Being the, the most, no, well, not most knowledgeable, but being the expert in something in your field, right? Like sure. having a good knowledge base of what to do. Right. And I love this because Katie has stumbled upon, I did not prep her for this. Ah. Okay. I didn't prep her for this, but she stumbled upon <laughs> the keyword of the key of elements the of the day. Expert. This concept of expert. All right. So why is that a key element? Well, it's a key element because becoming an expert takes work, and and it's a huge and it can be a huge investment, okay, uh, if of time and resources. Uh, so there have been a number of studies. This is not a firm science, but there's been a lot of observational science or social science around what it takes to become an expert in your field. Katie, I know I shared the number with you, so I've, I've already preloaded the answer here. So if you blow this, uh, I have to mock you now. Uh, okay, so that's not true. So how many hours does it take to become an expert in something? 10,000 right. plus hours. So this is uh, from, from the book Outliers, written by Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, it was a bestseller, talks about what does it take to become an expert? And uh, the observation is it takes 10,000 hours or approximately 10 years of very deliberate practice. That's important conceptually because, like, look, you could drive all the time. It doesn't make you an expert. You're not practicing driving. You're just going through the motions. True. Whereas if you wanted to become a Formula One driver, you would need to practice a lot race driving for 10,000 hours to become an expert. And the funny thing is, um, a lot of what they've observed is that it's not it doesn't have to do that much with natural talent like musicians. It's actually just put in the hours. True. You do 10,000 hours of playing the violin, you're going to get good at violin. Well, and there's comfort levels with things. You know, like the more often you do things, the more comfortable you become or the more you understand the structure and the layout of how things are. I mean, it's I've been working with you going on six years now, mm -hmm. and um, 
and it's taken a long time to understand right and all you, of the you ins and outs of the out, industry and i can i can say this okay that as far as the systems that we utilize to make things happen in our office that Katie's a legitimate expert in those systems. <laughs> well, she, her knowledge has exceeded mine. I've been doing, in, in certain areas that is, and I've been in this industry for 20 years, right? But your specialty level, specifically in the processing side of the business and interacting with that side of it, exceeds mine. Yeah, I'm very system oriented and I like systems. Right. So I try so to find all the ins and outs five years, of an average of 2,000 hours in a working year, of doing this yeah. stuff, you've developed significant expertise. Yep. And you've taught others along the way as well how to do this. So not only was it you having to learn, but you had to know it well enough to teach it. Right. Okay. So that that's the, the process to become an expert. It's all of this time involved. So uh, there's kind of a fun one. Uh, first of all, there's, there's another real big name out there in the self-help world, a guy by the name of Brian Tracy, very prolific author, um, who talks about uh, investing in oneself. And he says, all right, what would put you, he says, if you do this, it will put you in the top 1% of earners in our society. So my next question to David is, what is that bracket? Like, what is the top 1% okay, of the earners? So, so earners right now, because we got that, is there statewide or there's on a national level, right? Because each state is different. But right now, the top one percent of earners in the United States average four hundred and twenty-one thousand nine hundred and twenty-six dollars a year, and that was as of two thousand eighteen mid-year. That's what it took to be in the top one percent. So about four hundred twenty-two thousand a year. About four hundred twenty-two thousand. Now, if you live in certain states like like Connecticut's, the number one highest i believe you have to earn over seven hundred thousand. what about in that. oregon so if we're talking about the top one uh, percent of earners in oregon oregon uh let me pull that up real quickly i was just curious i have it uh three i like that number better yeah so you have <laughs> to earn more, more than three hundred and fifty nine thousand, and you're in the top one percent of earners in the state of oregon although interestingly enough the average income for the top one percent is almost 909,000. So it's quite a spread. Yeah. Yeah, so there's I mean, so I was sorry, I was kind of pausing for a second because I was like, wow. For the 1% is approaching a million dollars. Which is a number I would assume it would be closer to anyway. So I was kind of surprised when you said 359,000 a year. But I mean, that's, that's the bottom of a, the 1%. That's the bottom of the 1%. That, yeah, that, that's that's where the bar is, it right? It also the rest shows the you the average. Like if one person makes, so if, if, if the bottom is 358,000 and you had, 10 people in the room you could have essentially everybody make three hundred fifty-eight thousand, and one person could make 35 million and it would like average out or whatever to that number pretty True. close so um but i like goals so you know three hundred fifty-nine thousand is a good goal there you go <laughs> so the trick here is how do you get into that number become the expert okay so become the expert how do you become the expert by studying and advancing my education. By taking our last break. Oh, and look I at that. give you <laughs> the answer when we come back. Sounds good. So I will tell you guys How what, to earn what, more what Brian Tracy says is the way to get into the top 1% of all earners when we come right back. This is David Littlejohn. And Katie Shook. Yeah, True Wealth on News Radio 1240, KQEN. All right, guys, home stretch. 
of the True Wealth Show. Yes, it is. And I promised to drop this super important piece of data. What do we believe? The funny thing about this, there's no guarantee on this one. That's the best part. Although I genuinely think this is accurate. Okay. What do you think gets you to the to be an expert? Top one percent. Not even to be an expert. It turns out if you do this, expertise will simply follow. Ambition. I would think it would be ambition would be on the top An of the ambition list somewhere. Ambition gets you to the 1%. No, it's an actual thing you can do. Not like a, it's like a task. Follow this recipe. Oh. Yeah. It's, it's not task. like a, oh, dream big. No, no. no I didn't say dream. Dreams no. are, <laughs> dreams no. are wishes. No, no, no it's, was... I'm talking about a measurable thing that you can do. So study, read. Read one book per month. Any book? On your on on the subject that you want to become an expert in. Okay. Because okay. like any book's not going to help it. Okay. So one if you read book. only one book per month, that will put you in the top one percent of income earners in our society. But if you read one book per week or fifty books per year, that will make you one of the best educated, smartest, most capable, and highly paid people in your field. Regular reading will transform your life completely. This is a quote from Brian Tracy, who's also a book writer. He is an author. <laughs> there's a little bit of self-fulfilling prophecy on that one. There is some self-fulfilling prophecy, but I think that there's some real truth to this. I agree. If you think about what's involved to read a book a week, let's say on average that you are investing about four hours of reading a week at that point, let's say. Well, I know that TV watching is correlated with income. Yeah, it right? drops like the, the more you watch. Yeah. Yeah, so like the low, yeah, exactly. The lower your income, the higher the TV watching. So yeah. I think that translates also into the book reading, right? The people who are watching less TV are probably reading that book a week. So if I'm just going to math it out, let's say that you uh, did, let's say four hours a week. Okay. Then could you read a book in four hours? You'd read, f and let's say you get to take That's a couple weeks off. So if you did that four hours a week, 50 weeks a year, or 50 books. Right? Yeah. So 50 weeks, so 50 hours. books, 200 hours. Okay. Right? So in 10 years, you would be a full-blown master. Like you, I mean, you would <laughs> have like an expertise level that would exceed doctorate level. Wow. Right? I mean, that's 10 years of, of reading specific material. Well, and we talked and about- And a doctorate's what? Seven years of study? I mean, it's it's- yeah, it depends. I mean, usually four four plus. So it depends on. Yeah, I mean, so if you think about that scenario, this is a self administered doctorate, doctorate potentially in your field. And I would also say, you know, we were talking earlier about practicing, right? You said musicians still have to practice over and over again, and race car drivers. I would say the more frequently you read, the faster of the reader you become as well, sure, right? You like get your comprehension is better. Yeah, your reading skill is better. Your pace is better. It's just a really interesting concept to think that if that became a regular part of your life. And now this, you do need to note that I'm not talking about just, well, oh, well, you know, I get online and I read stuff. Or, oh, I get a magazine and read stuff. No, actual like books on topics. Right. Like a this, whole book on a and, topic. And we're not talking about fiction either. We're talking about nonfiction on your subject. So right. So if, if you're... Uh, want to become an expert in finance, you better start reading a lot about finance. Well, and I think that it's not just finance, right? Like, I mean, so let's talk about our field just for a second. So yes, it would involve 
I would say a good majority of the books being on the stock market or on finance and stuff and on personal finance, but some of it also might be on people, right? Like how, how to communicate better with people, how to better understand their needs. And so um, it, you know, it can correlate to a lot of different aspects of your job, not just one topic sure, of sure. your industry. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. Like it's, I mean, if you're in sales, it, you need to learn about yeah, people we'll learn as well about, as selling learn about your product. Sales. But, but it could be that you are in, you know, we talk about finance because it's a show about finance, but you may just want to learn about business or real estate or... Uh, or how to be a better communicator. Sure. I mean, it, I, or I, you may want to learn to become a better chef or something. And so you're not just reading recipes, you're actually... You know, reading and learning and understanding that there's there's chemistry behind the right. prep, and there's all these other elements that you right. uh, are figuring out how it works. Even economics, you know, so, like there's a lot of different things that tie into our field of finance. Yeah, and and it turns out that there is a benefit in general to studying almost any industry, right? Because what you find is that there are things that you discover that then become applicable in your profession. Right. Things I wouldn't have necessarily thought about initially that are quite relevant to even you know what we do and I go well what could you learn from McDonald's turns out there's a lot of things McDonald's does that our business like little john financial can learn to do better by duplicating philosophies that they started right right so you can learn all over the place but i think that's a real takeaway is develop expertise and it can start with deliberate study and it's you know crack open a book get your head out of the tv and do something deliberate expertise is easily within your grasp and uh, you know you sit there and think uh, now i was talking about you know a, a book a month but if you write a book a week you know a book a month puts you in the top one percent according to brian tracy a book a week is off the off the charts, charts right yeah. you know, you're you're crushing it so that's my encouragement is go out there and develop that expertise and you know that's going to move the needle for you. Sounds good. I like it. And keep in mind that value is magnified. If you become more valuable in a job, somebody's going to notice. And if your own employer doesn't notice, another employer will. will. Yes. Okay? Or you go create your own opportunity. So there's no downside to this. All right, but look, I hear the music, so we got to run. Uh, reminder: we got a bunch of upcoming events, including. Uh, how not to eat cat food in retirement. It'll be fun. So check that out on our website at littlejohnfs.com. And our phone number is? 541-375-0898. All right. You hear it here, folks. Thanks as always. This has been David Littlejohn. And Katie Shook. You got True Wealth on News Radio 1240. KQEN.